Well, kia ora, everyone. Welcome along to Seeds Podcast. This is Stephen Mo speaking, and I'm really glad you could join me. We just had the Seeds Impact Conference, and one of the sessions that I wanted to get out as an episode of Seeds was with former guest Shamabil Yakub. And he was talking with Helen Robinson, who's the Auckland City Missioner, as well as Sasha Lockley, who's the co-founder of Money Sweet Spot. And their topic was poverty and the economy. And I really enjoyed what they had to say. So I wanted to get it out for all of you to listen to as well. If you enjoy this, then why not share it? Tell someone else about the content that's on Seeds. And there's lots more information at theseeds.nz as well. There were 27 sessions at the conference. And all the videos will be uploaded soon to seedsconference.nz. Now let's get into this panel discussion about poverty and the economy. Look, I'm really excited to have these two amazing guests with me today. The topic of our discussion today is poverty and the economy, and it's quite a big topic. And I really want to invite two people who are dealing with, I guess, a very sharp end of poverty, but also somebody who's dealing with people who are falling out of relative comfort into poverty or at the risk of. So I've got these two amazing guests. My first guest is Helen Robinson, and she is the city missioner at the Auckland City Mission. Um, if it, any of you haven't seen Helen on the Q&A interview that she did, it's a must watch. Go look it up. Amazing. Uh, but it's also because you know she understands how poverty works and worked with it for so much of her life and is dealing with how to actually do something about it and look after people. So Helen, welcome. Absolute pleasure to have you here. And Sasha, I think we met maybe a year and a half ago, two years ago, I can't remember, but three, oh my goodness. Sasha was just at the beginning of starting Money Sweet Spot and Sasha's had an amazing journey and we'll pick up on side to actually coming to going, there are people who need access to good quality financial services that's affordable and I guess of full of empathy and care. And so she's gone off and started something of her own, which is Money Sweet Spot, with the backing of some amazing people. And so I'm really excited to have Sasha here because Sasha kind of lives and breathes the delivery of a solution to, for people who are experiencing, I guess, distress, might be falling out of relative comfort and poverty. And that's really, really exciting. Now, for me, I'm, I'm an economist. Um, I'm not going to be doing a lot of talking today. But I'm going to be managing some of the conversation today. And uh, my background is as an economist, um, while economists are kind of talking heads and all that kind of stuff, I may be a little bit different in that I actually care about the distribution and people who are behind it. Because fundamentally, the economy is not about the economy out there, but it's about how do we make more people better off. And I feel like we've lost sight of that. So we'll try and um, have that conversation today. So in the chat there, you've got a little bit of information about um, the Auckland City Mission. Um, please go and have a look, a search of uh, Sweet Money Spot, uh, and you'll get some really great information about what the culpable of the organization and is where it has come from. That's enough intros. Um, just drop us a chat if you need anything. And we can get started on in terms of just how are we going to kind of deal with and frame up this conversation. The, starting, the startling statistic for me is that there is something like 400,000 households in New Zealand who said they don't have enough money. And I might start with Helen. And Helen, you're kind of seeing the very sharp end of poverty. But, you know, what does poverty look like in your experience, with what you were seeing in places like Hongra? Uh, thank you, Shamabil, and uh, lovely to be doing this with you too, Sasha. To acknowledgement to you and to everyone on the call, tēnā koutou katoa. Uh, pleasure to be here with you today. Um, 
Shamabil has spoken about there's a, a super quick reference to the Auckland City Mission there. Um, just to give you a kind of three second elevator pitch so that you've got a sense of the context of who we are so I can begin talking. Uh, we are an organisation that's 103 years old um, based here in central city Auckland. So I am talking to you from a stone's throw from Sky City, literally throw a stone and it hits Sky City. Uh, our kaupapa is to respond to the face um, of suffering and desperation in central city Auckland and we've sought and attempted to do that for 100 years and really our, our purpose or existence is to respond to people who nobody else is or to really, as Shamabil said, uh, be at that hard edge of need actually in our country um, and it's that kind of place or position that I can uh, have authenticity or uh, both ability and responsibility to talk from. Uh, at the moment there are three areas that we're deeply connected uh, to and in. One is access to health care. Um, so when Shamabil asked me that question in terms of uh, poverty, what do we see? We have both a primary healthcare centre here and a detox unit and I think the clear, clear message that comes out of there is that uh, people who are deeply suffering are struggling to get access to both primary healthcare and access to uh, people who have um, services that genuinely respond to people who have a problem with alcohol or any other drugs. Uh, by and large, we say people um, are bad, so we put them in prison instead of actually acknowledging the health issue that it is. So that's one really big issue that's super, super concerning to not be able to have access to primary health care. And in fact, uh, between those two services, the mission uh, funds up to a uh, million dollars a year to keep them going. So we are funding and Auckland is funding services uh, because our country isn't. The second uh, that we're often quite well known for is our response to housing. And we have a whole raft of services in both emergency housing or accessing emergency housing, transitional housing and permanent housing. And um, it's not rocket science and I'm not telling you anything you don't know to tell you that there are lots of people who don't have homes. Um, but it is as simple as that. And uh, one of the conversations Shamabil and I have often had is that if New Zealand can't come to grips with providing appropriate affordable housing, then actually you are just growing uh, our future clientele. So there have been uh, conversations where I have had with different people that said, thank you, you are just ensuring the existence of the Auckland City Mission in the future. Obviously said in jest, because the thing that I would love to do is not to have to be providing housing. So we are really, we have a very special service uh, here where we are working with people who have been street homeless for a number of years. Now by the time you become street homeless what you have is, is years and years of a system that's failed you. So bluntly we are failing now people and we have a very particular kind of kaupapa or mission at the moment that we are failing women. 50% um, of uh, New Zealand's homeless population are women and we have services that I can count on one hand throughout our country that are dedicated for women and women, uh, of course, bring children with them. So our services are by and large designed for the single man, yet 50% uh, of homeless people are women with children. So you can see the madness. Then finally, and I'll hand over to Sasha because I'm conscious I'm speaking lots, we have a, a huge program, sadly, that is dealing with people who are hungry. 
So this is one of the great shadows of our country at the moment, our absolute refusal to uh, acknowledge the depth and extent of food insecurity in our country. So we uh, believe that 20% of New Zealand is food insecure, so one in five of us, we believe that parts of South Auckland, that that's close to uh, 40%. So... Um, a million people in New Zealand today do not have access to enough resources to have enough good kai. Um, so the City Mission in the last year distributed 50,000 food parcels with its partners. So every one of those 50,000 food parcels feeds a family of four for three meals for four days. So when I'm saying these numbers, I'm not making it up. Again, uh, it is women who are bearing this burden of poverty and particularly Māori and Pacific women. So poverty in our country has both a colour and it has a gender. Um, so very, very quickly we're taken to those structural drivers and we're showing what we value and what we don't value in our country. So that's poverty from my point of view, Shamabil. Thanks, Helen. And, you know, the thing that also comes to me, Helen, is there is also place in poverty. We have poverty that's urban, we have poverty that's rural, and they're not the same. They're very, very different things. And, you know, when I came and visited you at Home Ground and you gave us that tour, what, what really struck out for me was, yes, there's poverty, but there's also hope that we can do something about it. And I think the part of the conversation today is not to be just depressed about this stuff because it is depressing. But the reality is, I think I saw in the chat, with a country of 5 million people, we can actually totally solve this. It is within our grasp to be able to solve this. And that's the purpose of this conversation today. I might invite Sasha in because... Because, Sasha, I think, you know, some of the poverty that you're dealing with is probably more people who are falling out or falling into poverty or at the risk of poverty. So it'd be really great to hear your experiences over time with what you're doing now, but also what you saw before. Yeah, cool. I'm Kara Pori. Um, <clears throat> I want to start with a really short sentence that I've decided that um, is the, um, the grounding in which I see the world. So I believe that people are good. And I believe that bad things can happen to any of us. But I think that systems are set up to judge people for what life inherently is, which is unpredictable. So what I see is that an unpredictable life event, somehow people become bad or it's their fault, you know, and we must be better because it hasn't happened to us. And I used to talk about that when I first met Shamabil three years ago. I'd say that and, and COVID hadn't happened. You know, and um, the unfortunate circumstance of COVID uh, is that people didn't other. The shared collective pain of COVID um, had pilots not flying in the sky and their income going down. So um, as a bit of a background, um, Money Sweet Spot was born out of my inherent dislike of the judgment of people, um, particularly around financial services and debt. What I saw that it was that debt could be a defining moment in a family's life for many generations, rather than debt being um, able to be worked through. So that came to the creation of Money Sweet Spot as a place where we um, help people through debt and on with life in a place of non-judgment using the power of empathy. So in terms of poverty um, in the service that, that we provide, um, we kind of, um, it's the women as well. So we've got some real themes around um, people um, taking on um, sexually transmitted debt is a big theme that's um, coming through for us at the moment and balancing the responsibilities of, of family life and taking on the responsibilities of children. 
And I think um, over the last three years for me, there was a, um, a perception of what it was to be in poverty. And I've seen that definitely shift. People who are um, families that are both working, a couple of kids renting and life is getting really, really tricky and an unpredictable life event, an unpredictable um, unexpected expense can be the reason that people go from juggling those financial balls to struggling and then distressed. And um, really what I've seen over the last three years is an increase in people who are in that um, struggling um, place um, across New Zealand. Um, and I think that from a societal perspective, um, the people that need help now haven't necessarily reached out for help before and don't know where to go. Um, I was in, I spoke to Christchurch City Mission a few weeks ago and they've had an increase in people who are working coming for food banks. So making a decision between your rent and food and not knowing where to, where to turn. So I think there's a really um, a shift in the face of vulnerability um, and what it is to be in poverty in New Zealand. Yeah, Sasha, can you give us a rough feel for, you know, the people that are experiencing this trouble, what kind of incomes are they on? I mean, is it like terribly low incomes or is it also people on what we would consider, say, middle income? Yeah, middle income. Yeah, so um, the average um, uh, income of our customers is kind of around 65, can be over 100,000 for um, a family. Um, yeah. So it's it's kind of not the <clears throat> 35,000 low income family it's it's middle new zealand and i think from a financial services perspective what i've noticed is that the the bigger players if you like have reduced mm. their risk appetite to support those people because they want to kind of stay with the the prime credit i think and there's this bigger widening gap in the middle and more people are falling into it with nowhere to go for responsible um financial products or um or ways to work through a financial situation that maybe they've never faced before. Yeah, I did some work on um, <clears throat> people with problem debt uh, a couple of years ago, and what really came through was just how much shame there is, how much prakama there is just to kind of ask for help. So there is a real barrier to seeking help, even though there is some help available. But the help that's available is not easy to get to. The funnel is very confusing. Mm-hmm. Um, and quite often the quality of the as you know, quality of the services that are available are not always good. Quite often they can be traps themselves. Yeah. And so there's this kind of this extraordinary kind of situation. But I just, if I can just touch on something with both of you, and to me, it's the sense that the face of poverty in New Zealand seems to be changing. It seems to be creeping higher and higher up in terms of the income brackets. Um, Helen, you know, you've been working around poverty for a long time. Has the face and experience of poverty changed over time from what you have seen? Um, I think there's a yes and a no to that that I kind of need to land on. Um, And it feels like there's two conversations going on at the moment, and I just want to acknowledge those two. One is a description of um, almost the facts that's going on, the kind of people you're seeing, Sasha, the reality they're experiencing, the kind of people uh, that we see here at the mission and many great organisations throughout our country see, actually. And then I think there's this overlay that's actually saying how are we as a society both constructing our response to that? And uh, 
is that helping or is it hindering? Um, and I think I, I just, uh, before I kind of land into that question, Shamabiel, I just want to pick up, Sasha, on what you were saying, that um, uh, one of my roles, I believe, is to, as accurately and as bluntly as I can, describe what I am seeing or we are seeing through this organisation more broadly. Because in that accuracy and directness, there is a fact that is unequivocal. We, we can't move from that. Then there is an understanding that the constructs are not helping. So, Sasha, one of the things I often say is that through our systems, we're condemning people to being poor. This is never the fault of the individual. It is always a system driver, always. And then, ironically, or with tragedy, we condemn them for being poor. So we're saying we're making you poor and then we're saying you're bad because you are. Now, both the construct of the two, or making someone poor, the system, and then condemning them for it, neither is helping. And what we can do, we actually need to address the judgment around it to actually get to the real issue. And I think, Shamabiel, this links to what you were saying. I really back us in our country. I have the privilege of seeing the generosity and the extraordinary creativeness and guts of our country like we are courageous incredibly gifted people um, at the same time we're extraordinarily judgmental and harsh on each other so if we can actually land in a space where we see what is in front of us we do have both the resources and the skills to construct an alternative now that's that's the uh, kind of the beauty and the tragedy that I think uh, really I think will be one of the themes of today, and it is quite a privilege to be with the 80, 90 of you here, people I understand who are really trying to get into that space of what is the reality and how do we move us through, because the moving us through actually does take a collective um, and a, a kind of tipping point of people who will actually say we have constructed it this way, we can construct it another way. Now I think uh, Shamabil, to what you were saying before, really I think in again, I'm telling you something you all know, the late 80s, early 90s uh, marked a shift in our world and in our country, how we constructed our, our responses both uh, through government and then more broadly in the corporate sector that has meant at that point that um, uh, what we uh, as a kind of country are asking of our government to respond to people. Now, what then has happened now 30 years later is that we are seeing the long-term decisions of those decisions, of those um, policies really. So uh, you you have a policy where you don't give a single mother enough money to raise children. There is both immediate impacts to that, but there is also long-term impacts to that. And we're starting to see some of those long-term impacts that, that mean, for example, for 30, 40 years, we just haven't built enough houses. So it, it means houses, housing and homes are becoming more scarce. So it just means that it goes up the income ladder. So uh, in 20, 30 years ago, if you're on a very low income, unless you accessed social housing, 
you weren't going to get a house. Now what's actually happening is you can be on 70, 80, 90, 100K and you actually don't have enough money to access affordable homes. Now we know, and uh, many people are a lot more cleverer than me, is that you could actually frame New Zealand's poverty issue just all around housing. Um, it's the big ticket item that until we get that sorted, actually the impact of poverty gets stretched. So what we see here on a day-to-day basis, people coming in for food, actually the big ticket item is uh, rent or the mortgage. Um, and so, so Shamabel, to answer your question in a very long-winded way, is yes, the breadth or the extent of poverty is increasing so that more people on higher income, Sasha, are experiencing it. Now, the one brief no that I have to have is that that poverty is structural. We're saying as a country, women are less, Māori and Pacific people are less. So we are saying that um, if you're a woman, you're not as good as a man. If you are Māori or Pacific, you are not as good as Pākehā. So therefore, what that means is, is that if you are a woman or Māori and Pacific, you are going to be suffering and bearing the burden more. That truth still exists. That hasn't changed. Thank you, Helen. And I think that I can see that in the data. I mean, being a geek, that's what I kind of look at. And essentially, New Zealand had addressed its income inequality quite well in the post-war era when we built the welfare state. And then, of course, we broke our government system and our public policy system in the 80s. And the promise was that that increase in inequality would come down once things got better. But it never did. So we've condemned people to this poverty. We've condemned ourselves to not having enough homes. And, you know, when my wife and I wrote Generation Rent eight years ago, our hope was that we would at some point start to see progress on the housing front at least. And we are starting to see some progress, but God, it's slow. It's too slow. And, you know, the crisis that we're seeing in terms of the poverty, so much of it is, you know, the uncertainty of housing as well as the big issues that we see around I think even people with mortgages now facing these big increases, that's really putting them on the edge. Sasha, I might come to you in terms of your experiences over time working in financial services. Um, you know, how has that kind of experience of poverty changed? But specifically for you, you know, can you talk to us a little bit about how expensive it is to be poor? Oh, my gosh. Um, the underserved and underbanked pay more for their debt. And if you can't afford to repay the debt, you get charged more. Just seems ludicrous, doesn't it? So um, so I used to be the COO of a large finance company here in New Zealand. It's one that you would all know. And um, before that, I worked for the serious fraud office as a forensic accountant. I used to put people in prison for financial services fraud. And the reason I'm sharing those two things uh, with you is that you can imagine my surprise when I go and be on the exec of a finance company of some of the lovely revenue streams that um, finance companies are able to make out of people who need to access finance. So from my context, at the moment, New Zealanders, it's not unusual for um, people with lower incomes to be paying over 30% interest on any debt facility they take on. It's also not unusual for it to be over 50% interest. On top of that, the application fees, monthly fees, admin fees, default fees, default interest if you miss a payment, it can double the cost of that debt quite easily. It's mind-blowing. So that's when when um, we set up Sweet Spot, that's why we don't charge the monthly account fee. We don't charge default interest because if people are missing payments, how stupid is it to then make that debt larger? 
So it um, is more expensive to be poor in New Zealand. And if um, we see people needing to access funds for an emergency, a root canal, uh, the car blew up. I can't get to work without paying the car. I will find the money somewhere, but I don't have the mythical emergency savings account because who does in this environment, actually? So I go to wherever will say yes. The place that will say yes is likely to be charging um, is a high cost credit facility. That debt then becomes defining in a person's life and for that family. And it becomes something that um, they never get out of. And Sasha, but is that new? Hasn't it always been the case that it sucks to be poor, that it's expensive, you don't have services that are designed for you, right? I mean, is it really new or is it just, it, bite, it bites more? Like what's changed? So so there's a couple of things. So I don't I don't think it's new, um, but um, I think that in the last few years, there's been so much political, um, this is being recorded, uh, political um, tennis batting around the legislation that governs financial services that was intended to protect people from um, uh, predatory lenders. But uh, conversely, it excluded people from accessing financial products. So the, the intention was really good around some legislation change. Uh, but what it actually did was meant that more and more lenders needed to say no to people that previously they would have been able to say yes to. And I know that that sounds strange, um, but I think that that meant that people were kept in high cost credit facilities. So um, they had to stay with the 50% interest, even if they could go somewhere else and it may have been 10%, they weren't allowed out of that contract in some of the legislative changes that happened. So fortunately, some of that's being unwound now. So it's a problem that's existed for eons, but I think that the um, the macroeconomic environment is impacting that and also some of the, the legislative ping pong that's been happening over the last few years around the triple CFA. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think the problem for me is we seem to have this uncoordinated response. Mm -hmm. Quite often we'll try and protect the poor by making the very poor worse off. We might have a legislation to stop something happening, but we don't offer a counter in terms of a way for people to still access credit, right? There is no, we didn't build a new thing that's say, yeah, if or you can't not access credit, You know, or, or not require credit to Helen's point, you know, accessing healthcare so that you're not going to credit because you need a thing you know so I think it's a it's about joining those approaches together so 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 you know obviously I don't think debt's bad I think debt's a tool if you're choosing to use it for something that's aligned with and uh, you know a want that you have I'm not going to say that debt shouldn't exist that's not that's not my belief but I do think that Ooh. we need to acknowledge that um when things happen in people's lives they should be able to access um God get up and right to healthcare without needing to um, end up in debilitating debt. And I think from both of you, we know what the underlying thing is. Poverty is what poverty is, is that you don't have enough income and you can solve that by giving people more income, but you have to want to. I think you kind of started on it, Sasha, and, and I'm far less careful when it comes to politics. I think our politics is fundamentally broken, right? Our politicians are all going, what can we do for the squeeze middle? Well, bugger the squeeze middle. What about the poor? Right. And it's kind of like it's extraordinary that this entire political spectrum is built around trying to appease the middle. And we do it at the cost of the vulnerable and the poor. And I mean, vulnerable is not even the right word. These are the people who'd survive despite not having enough. They're probably the hardest in our communities. 
but our politics is kind of fundamentally broken in not having the heart and empathy that you talked about. Now, don't let it get me started on politics because it'll get me angry because I want us to move into a slightly more positive space. And I want to start on the positive space because both of you are also working on solutions. And I want to touch on those because there are clearly ways for us to deal with this stuff. Um, and Helen, I wonder if we could start with you just in terms of a little bit of your experience of building home ground and what, you know, what works there? Because, you know, what I saw there was just so, I don't know, it was uplifting. It gave me hope. Yeah, and it's lovely to hear. Um, I think one of the things I want to say is is that um, some of the the answers to some of the tr the tricky stuff that's going on, while it's complex, it's not rocket science. It's actually very doable. Um, it, it, assuming we build in some things like some good evaluation and some some thoughtful care around the delivery of services and products and then a kind of open disposition that says okay that didn't work but that did work so when you kind of have that disposition I actually think it is possible and home ground itself is a really really good example so uh, this is a 11-story uh, facility that we have here in Central City Auckland uh, we have uh, 80 permanent houses houses uh, in this facility. That's five of those floors, including a rooftop. We have two floors of a detox unit, one run by Te Whatawara and one run by ourselves. And then on our ground floor, we have a whole range of services, including a primary healthcare centre and a service called Hayata, where uh, people can come for one good meal a day. Um, now, just to get a sense of that, uh, on a busy day, we can have 300 people through in a three-hour period. So that shows you in central city Auckland how many people literally do not have any money for food and or are homeless so um, and that's quite separate than our food security uh, program which is run out of other sites so uh, home ground is a beautiful building and we designed it to be beautiful because it was an act of justice it said our most poorest deserved the best um, we worked hard not to be ostentatious uh, so it's not over the top but it is beautiful and the whole building including the apartments and the medical center and the detox units are designed with the intention and need of, of the need. So we literally just sat down and said, if we want to house 80 people, what's it going to look like? And the litmus test as we worked our way through, uh, bluntly, was that people like me would have to be happy to live there permanently. So it's, it's just kind of your ordinary person test that actually says uh, what is needed. Um, and then there's some thoughtfulness in that. And to be fair, it's uh, taken us 16 years to get here. So this is not an overnight job, team. Um, the cost of home ground, if you kind of hold your chairs for a moment, was $110 million. Uh, we started with $8 million in the bank. This is the biggest capital, uh, capital fundraising campaign for an NGO in New Zealand's history currently. About 18 months, uh, I received the last $5 million of that $110 million. So we opened home ground debt free. New Zealand did that for us. Uh, so we had $8 million to start with, so the balance of that, just over $100 million, is what our country gave us. So now we worked hard to get it, but uh, it shows you what is possible and actually just how generous New Zealand is. So through that, what that means is 80 people now have a home who this time last year, we housed our first person on the 11th of April last year, didn't have a home. And what's incredibly important in particular about home ground is 40 of the 80 people in here are part of the Housing First program. So very bluntly, you've got one year on the street to qualify, a minimum of, 
health and two comorbidities. So you're physically unwell, you're mentally unwell, you have an active addiction, you're cognitively impaired. This is designed for people who haven't been able to be sustainably housed elsewhere and we're doing it here. Now, we've learnt loads in 18 months and uh, it's not easy, but the, but the critical message is here, it's possible. The story of home ground is, and just even in that little housing bit, is the provision of adequate, affordable housing with appropriate support for uh, people who have the highest level of need in our country. It can be done. And it can be done when all of us do that together. Uh, so that's uh, a lot of people. I talk about this building being made of brick and wood, but actually it's made in the generosity and courage of our country. It's a truth that does exist. Helen, can I just ask, do we have those conversations about the costs of being homeless? You know, it's extraordinarily expensive, even from just a government perspective, living inside society and the individual's. Just from a government perspective, there's a huge fiscal cost of having homeless people. Um, totally. And in fact, yeah, sorry, Samaville, you keep going. I'm just asking, so, you know, when we have them through home ground, is there any evidence, have we built up any evidence around what change, what impact it makes? It's a very good question. I'm currently in conversation with our government to fund the evaluation of the apartment. So I'll use this as an opportunity to encourage that evaluation. So uh, very, very specifically, uh, we don't have... Um, kind of academic or university level evidence yet, Shamabeel, but I'm working my way towards it. What I can tell you, and it's not rocket science, if you can't get to primary health care, which would be the, you know, many people who have a lot of money are waiting now two or three weeks to go to a doctor, but just imagine what it's like if you're on the street and you don't have money. So if we weren't providing primary health care here at, at uh, home ground, people would be going to the emergency department. Now, what's super interesting is that people who are vulnerably housed or live on the street are often very, very physically unwell. So just imagine what it would be like to be insulin dependent and living on the street. Like, where do you store your insulin? It gets very kind of practical and very pragmatic in the scheme of things. So what we are doing through the provision of primary health care is saving our country literally millions of dollars because people would be turning up to ED, they would be then in hospital and would be having not longer stays than what they're actually needed. And that's what primary health care is designed for. But primary health care is going the way of housing, that actually it is becoming the, the privilege of the resourced to actually access primary health care quickly in, uh, in the appropriate time uh, in response to that need. Now, the other really classical experience or um, example is that uh, police involvement. So it would be very, very common um, that there is someone who is homeless, who is intoxicated, who therefore is going to be having uh, involvement with the justice system. Um, there are many people, by the way, tonight who are housed and intoxicated in their homes. That would be a relatively common experience in New Zealand. Uh, um, so uh, if you have a home, 
therefore you are more likely to not be involved in the justice system. And that's probably a bad example, but it is a, a relatively good one that actually just says that our police are involved uh, with people who are unhoused, often unnecessarily so, but then uh, situations get exasperated and exaggerated that then appropriately do require the justice system. So there's very, very clear evidence uh, from overseas that housing people who were once uh, street homeless actually reduces significantly the cost to both our health and our justice system particularly. Yeah, thanks. And I mean, that's the literature from around the world. If you look at the, the you know, the dealing with poverty, I don't know if any of you read uh, uh, Matthew Desmond's book, uh, Poverty by America, extraordinary book. If you haven't read it, put it on, read it while you've got some Prozac on hand, but absolutely amazing. Um, and I think that's the evidence is it's totally solvable. It doesn't cost that much money. And in fact, it saves you a whole bunch of other money on the other side. You don't have to build prisons and all those other bits and pieces if you deal with the poverty issues. Um, in the comments I saw, there was Natalie Vincent on the on the call today. And Natalie used to be the CEO of uh, Natangata Microfinance is now at Good Shepherd. They've got a great solution around uh, microfinance. And, you know, very similar, I think, like, um, you know, the innovation that we're seeing with Sasha we're trying to provide solutions for people who need it to stop people from falling into these terrible things. Sasha, can you talk to us a little bit about some of the things that are working? Because it's not like we're not standing still, right? There um, is innovation that's happening. So I'm now going to give you a 30 second pitch on sweet spot, really. So um, we launched nine months ago with the only um, lender of our type in New Zealand. The one thing we do is help people out of debt. So in that time, in that nine months, we've helped um, nearly 700 families out of $30 million worth of high cost debt. Um, and we've helped a further 800 families access free financial education and referrals to community partners. So when we set up, we said that we didn't want to displace good people already doing good things in community. So what's the gap that exists? And the gap that existed was a mechanism for people to get out of debt, but linking that to financial education and support. So in the last nine months, um, our customers have also engaged in over 4,000 pieces of financial education. The reason I'm saying that is that that helps people to get out of debt quicker because what we've said is that takes effort and time and that should be acknowledged and rewarded. So by engaging in financial education, extra money comes off um, off our customers' loans or into um, a savings account that, that for the level of financial um, resilience for those financial shocks um, in the future. Um, on top of that, our customers um, have... so. Um, our advisor is Kane Karahoma, who's uh, down in Gizzi. And his question to me moons ago was, how can this journey through debt increase people's capacity for generosity? Because if you are in a situation of financial stress, distress, juggling, struggling, your capacity to be generous with time, with other resources, um, how could you link that to debt? So by our families committing to getting out of high cost debt, completing their financial reset, they get to donate to causes they care about through our partnership with the Good Registry. So acknowledging their ongoing commitment by linking it to something they care about. So that's where we're at in nine months. And just to kind of loop back around um, where we started around that judgment. Really, we're a lender with empathy. That's all it is, like what's working? Listen to people, 
don't assume their situation. Don't judge. And that's all we're doing differently is empathy. You know, I think um, one of the things that's making me angry at the moment is some of the narrative around, well, people should just budget better. <clears throat> really? Is that the is that the way we're going to solve um, for poverty and people financially struggling? Really? I don't think so. It's the other end of the equation. You know, so I think that um, the people who have very little are the best uh, people to ask about how to make a little go a long way. So what's working well is that people are working through their debt. We've had people um, be able to get first home offers through getting out of high cost debt. Um, relocate for better employment opportunities. So I had a, a lady from Northland that moved down to Auckland with her six kids. Um, and it's expensive to relocate, but that's what she did. And she's been able to navigate that movement um, and get out of debt that she'd been in for a very long time because our average interest rate just covers our costs. So what we're trying to show the system is that to say that this is risk-based pricing for a loan, we need to charge 50% because it's high risk. It's bullshit, excuse me, but it is. Um, you can be a sustainable finance organisation. We're not a charity. We're a sustainable finance organisation that can be impactful, where people can move through debt without judgment, harnessing the power of empathy. That resonates so much with me because um, as part of a project for MSD, I interviewed a whole bunch of people who had access to solution services, including from Natalie's um, Tangata. And mm -hmm. what I heard from these people was, you know, just they just needed a break. They just needed a break to be able to come out of it, right? That's all it was. And of course, you know, like you said right at the beginning, Sasha, you might fall out again because life happens. It's unpredictable and this stuff happens. And people who are poor will always need more support to be able to bounce back up because they don't have the reserves. But that's where debt and community support and those safety nets can be so helpful. I'm just mindful that we're running out of time, but I'd love to hear from you, Sasha, just an idea on what could we do at the systems level to kind of take these innovations and make them bigger? Because the need that's out there is solvable in New Zealand, but it can't be just you and Natalie and others going off and doing this stuff. We need a bit more of a systems response. Do you have any ideas? Oh, increase access to capital for people trying to change a financial system rather than being seen weird. Um, that would be something that's epic. Like, like, just as a really quick aside, can you imagine pitching for investment and saying, look, I don't want to be the biggest. We just want to do one thing. We want to do it really well. And if people get out there faster, that's a win, isn't it? You know, please give us some money. You know, so I think that um, at a systems level, I think that um, I'd like to see um, some changes around how capital can be allocated for innovation. And I think that um, I really wish that our legislative environment around financial services wasn't a ping pong game between the political parties because it's not helping anyone. Um, and whilst they're doing that, um, we we have more and more families struggling, juggling and distressed. And it's just not good enough. It's a constant frustration for me that there is this extraordinary amount of political divisiveness on issues that really are not that divisive. And they would actually pay dividends for individual society and for the government coffers if we chose to do it right. And, you know, there are some really good examples in the UK where they've used kind of the, you know, the lost money in bank accounts to fund these kinds of uh, affordable credit services. We could do that. We could just use the bond money that's sitting in our tenancy services if we wanted to. There's lots of potential innovations that are possible, but there is a lack of will.
Um, Helen, I'm just, again, conscious of time. So I just want to get your ideas. And I know you want to solve the world, but are there some things in addition to, I guess, being more empathetic and government being just a bit more joined up? What are the kinds of practical things that we really need to focus on to move New Zealand forward? I think there's two things that I'd say, and, and I'm almost just repeating what both you and Sasha have said, and I suspect that, that the audience here knows, is that the litmus test to everything is the experience of uh, the individual family or individual. So um, we need to uh, hear and privilege the, the stories of people or the experience of people. So Sasha was moved when you said before, you know, is that like, here's this assumption around budgeting and debt, but is it really actually? Like what's really going on? So that is a process of kind of encouraging uh, all of us actually to um, uh, step beyond our prejudice and actually simply to listen and then I think to hear, so it's something in that listening and that hearing space. So often the question that, it, that I have to ask myself is, what does it take me to hear? And I, I often have to remove something that happens between the listening and the hearing to actually hear. So I think there's that encouragement. So when I hear, I hear that debt is crippling people. So, okay, there's kind of two very simple answers. How do we raise income or manage expenditure? And then how do we deal with the palaver around how debt is coped with? And Sasha, you've spoken beautifully about that today. So it's that's and and if we did that, then people wouldn't be coming to us for food. And and Shamabilo's conscious about what you said in the opening about housing. Like housing really is the deal breaker at the moment. And it is getting better, but oh my gosh, it feels like it's pushing stuff uphill. Um is it really that hard? Um so I think it then takes me back to some probably less practical, but but certainly I believe more powerful statements. Um, please, New Zealand, uh, hear. Uh, please, New Zealand, be brave. Um, and please, New Zealand, stop being so afraid. Uh, and when we can live in that space... Um, it's it's we're all good yeah I think the reason I love talking to and listening to Helen is because it comes from a place of experience but with solutions right and there is a wider systems issue in terms of if, if you want to solve the issues that we see in New Zealand they're actually within our grasp but we are starting from what's the right question and what's the right motivation and um you know, my sense is that if you don't start from a position of love, of unconditional love for all New Zealanders, it doesn't work. I sound very preachy here, but I think that's really what it is. When you start blaming people and condemn people to poverty, you will not be able to come out of it because it's all about finger pointing. Look, it's been an absolute privilege to have these two amazing women with me today to talk about, I think, the real experience of what the economy looks like when the economy doesn't work for everybody. The economy should be about lifting more people up. And when you don't do that, there are some serious consequences. And they're individual, they're social, they're fiscal. But we know there are solutions. We've got two women who are delivering it on the front line every single day and many other people. Um, thank you so much for joining us today. I encourage you to go and have a look at the City Mission and Money Sweet Spot. Please support them anywhere, anywhere you can, because the more we can amplify these stories and activities, the more New Zealanders will be better off. Thank you. 
Perfect. Thank you so much, everyone. That was an incredibly passionate and solution-based session. And so thank you for that. The links are in the um, in the chat. So go and check those out a bit further and see the ways that you can support. We do hope you enjoyed that panel discussion on poverty and the economy. I know there's lots of highlights for me. And don't forget, this was one of 27 sessions. So you might want to check out the others as well. You can get more information at theseeds.nz. And a big thank you to all the helpers and volunteers who made it happen.